Hi, I'm Andy Ellis. I'm the host of this show and a potential Green Party candidate for Governor of Maryland in 2026. I'm using this show to highlight interesting people and ideas that help me and you to understand what is happening and what is possible. You can learn more about the campaign by going to gogreen2026.com. Guests on this show do not necessarily support my campaign or the Green Party. They've agreed to come on to discuss ideas and issues. And of course, click the subscribe button on YouTube so you can keep up to date with this podcast. Davon Love is a Baltimore-based political organizer and the Director of Public Policy for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, LBS. LBS is a grassroots think tank that advances the public policy interests of black people, and in 2010, Love co-founded LBS, who was one of many organizations that successfully pressured the state of Maryland to disband its plans to build a juvenile justice jail downtown Baltimore. LBS has also led legislative efforts and advocacy efforts regarding criminal justice reform, youth, and community empowerment. Davon is the author of Worse Than Trump, The American Plantation, a book that offers an important critique of the American political left and a political alternative to the exploitive relationship that black people have to white institutions. Davon is also the author of When Baltimore Awakes, which is a comprehensive critique of the way the white supremacy is embedded in the human social service sector in Baltimore. Hi, and welcome. Uh, Tonight's show is about criminal justice reform in Maryland. Maryland is a deep blue state, and the last two times our electoral votes for president did not go to the Democrat, Reagan and the first George Bush were on the ballot. The governor and every other elected executive officer are Democrats. Both houses of the legislature have decades-long, veto-proof Democratic majorities. The top seven counties by population all have Democrat executives. Six of the seven of them have Democratic state attorneys. And yet, or maybe because of that, tough on crime policies are a major part of the governor's all of the above approach to public safety that he made the top priority in his state of the state address yesterday. He is partnering with the General Assembly to pass a series of bills that many critics say would bring more and younger children deeper into the justice system. While data from the state of Maryland shows that juvenile crime continues to decline decade over decade, Maryland ranks in the top five among states with the highest rate of people incarcerated who are serving time for crimes committed as children. (coughs) Tonight, David and I are going to dive into this question, but first a note about how I'm approaching this conversation. I've been reading Abolition Feminism. (coughs) Hold on. All right. All right. I've been reading Abolition Feminism now, and there's a useful theme that runs through that work, namely that a radical political analysis and radical political activity require an understanding of the past, an active confrontation with the now, and a utopian vision of the future. But perhaps most importantly, they also require a concrete strategy for the time in between now and the future. With that framing in mind, let's get started. Hey, Davon, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. What's up, Andy? Good, good. Glad to have you here. Glad to get into this conversation. And uh, I know today has been a busy day and, you know, uh, on this topic. So I will get to that in a minute. But, um, you know, I want to start where we started. So uh, if folks know, my bio page on on the website talks a lot about debate. I was a debate coach at Towson when Davon was a student there who won the first of several national championships for the Tigers. Uh, you know, both Davon and I are 
Towson alums and, you know, go Tigers. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how the debate helped prepare you for the kind of political and advocacy work you do today? Yep. So um, it's always good to be on with you, Andy. And, um, you know, I think talking about just our history, you know, in debate and just some of the ideas is good grounding. Um, because I think that, you know, one of the things that is a defining feature of LBS's advocacy is like the depth of historical and political analysis and the rigor. And, you know, debate for me was the gateway to just my political consciousness. Um, I did debate in high school through the Baltimore Urban Debate League. And, you know, people who are familiar with my work know that, you know, as I matriculated through it, um, went to college, got a scholarship, um, you know, was an extension of an intellectual and academic innovation. Um, so folks like from the University of Louisville, Daryl Birch, Nettie Warner, Liz Jones, and Tanya Green, and then all the other folks that are a part of that kind of, kind of pedagogical revolution in debate that really looked at systems of oppression and white supremacy in the context of debate. So I kind of came along like during that period of time, and that's when I met you. And and so it shaped my politics in a way that uh, is a contrast to my participation in the Baltimore Urban Debate League, where debate was more, where at that stage it was more about just civic engagement, you know, public speaking, whereas college debate, my experience there was really formative in terms of my political perspective and worldview. And, you know, I was able to, you know, debate this very elite academic activity. And so at a very early age, being able to engage um, ideas around society, how it's structured, the impact it has on Black folks, the ability to have those discussions, you know, with some of the brightest students in the country. Um, and so that really formed and went in nationals um, with that perspective um, is something that um, stays with me today. And actually one of the things, I know Andy and I, you know, you, we've talked about this in the past, there's certain debates from college that replicate themselves in the work that I do today, you know, and it's, it's actually, you know, some, we should probably do something more extensive on like we've talked about, but, you know, I just, I, I, I leave with that to say that um, much of the intellectual rigor and the precision of the kind of political analysis and the depth of political analysis from LBS, a lot of that was made possible just by the activity of policy debate, our approach to it. Um, and again, even kind of our long engagement, both, you know, as friends and as, you know, kind of building an intellectual community and intellectual practice. Um, you know, I think that that's something that um, is, you know, I, don't, I think that's something that people would benefit from more of that. You know, yeah, absolutely. And I think I think we should do one of these about that experience, about that debate mm -hmm. experience and how it has translated, not just for you, but for many others into a uh, confrontational and radical politics in some cases um, and a different kind of politics in other cases. But I think a whole show about that, bringing on a different a, a group of folks could be really good. Um, and we should do it at some point, either on one of my platforms or on one of yours. But because um, I, I think it's a whole conversation. Yeah. yeah.
Um, but tonight, I want to, I do want to talk about criminal justice reform tonight. And so, after you finished debating at Towson, um, you've helped <coughs> found LBS, and um, you've been working on criminal justice reform in the city in Annapolis for a long time. And there have been a lot of significant advances over that time. Can you talk about some of the big issues and fights over that time, leading up through the last legislative session? Yep. So when we found at LBS, we, you know, looked around, you know, and even referencing debate, we noticed that other people were making, were working for, when they were finished the activity, working for major public policy institutions that were advancing whatever number of interests that they were interested in. So we, when we finished debate, we looked around and realized that a lot of the folks that were advocating in the policy arena on issues that impacted Black people weren't Black folks. And if they were, they didn't carry perspective and worldview that had an inherent commitment to Black people. And so where we started, our first fight was uh, stopping the construction of a $104 million juvenile detention facility. So LBS and many other organizations, Baltimore Algebra Project, clear like a variety of organizations had come together. Um, you know, Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, you know, all kinds of folks came together to um, try to stop that jail. And the, the premise is, is that, um, you know, we were clear that in a society where, you know, black people are criminalized, right? The societal propaganda around black people being inherently criminal, um, particularly when you talk about black youth. And we were and and the idea of building a jail, even though at that period of time, the existing capacity of the juvenile justice system, I think at the time was at about half capacity. Right. So the idea of building a new jail, we clear, we were we understood that as a nod to the prison industrial complex. Right, mass incarceration of, you know, bringing more young people in contact with the criminal justice system. So that was our first major fight, multi-year effort. Um, you know, we, you know, we were successful, you know, in stopping that jail from being built. Um, and then after that, you know, we started working on issues around police accountability. Um, you know, and so um, I'm trying to think because I don't want to get into the whole story how we got involved, but. Um, community oversight of law enforcement. So we were, um, you know, trying to make it so that there was more um, involvement of non-law enforcement officers in the disciplinary process. Um, and so that's something that took many years. Um, and that, ex you know, and so that expanded to a variety of other issues outside of the criminal justice system. One of the reasons that we did advocacy in Annapolis on issues related to criminal justice is because we became clear that the laws that governed criminal justice were laws that were made on the state level, that the state has providence over the policies that um, oversee criminal justice, not city council and the mayor. And so in doing that advocacy, it became part of our work to go down to Annapolis because that's where, that's where the decisions are made about that. Yeah, and so you've been going down to Annapolis for a lot of years and, and, and taking the fight there. Um, and sometimes that's been on offense and sometimes that's been on defense. Um, and, you know, so like some of this has been about sentence enhancement. Some of it has been about um, cannabis and odor searches. Can you talk about those two fights a little bit? Yeah. So um, the what was the first one, the one before odor searches, you said? Sentence enhancement. Sentence enhancement. So um one of the major dynamics, and in some ways this is kind of skipping ahead, but I want to give some of this context in order to explain yeah, the sure. fights, if that makes sense. So 
one of the mistakes that I believe liberals make or progressives make as it relates to discussions around criminal justice. I would say that there's been this kind of collective epiphany over the past 15 to 20 years around the dangers of the criminal justice system and the mis and the mistakes policy-wise in addressing public safety. So there's been a recognition of mass incarceration and its negative impact on the community. And one of the mistakes that liberals and aggressives have made is this idea that the problem was a focus on nonviolent drug offenders, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea being that, you know, we needed to treat um, drug use not as a criminal issue, but as a public health issue. And so we need to address those that are addicted to drugs and to deal with drug use as a, as a health issue. So that nonviolent drug offender piece. And the mistake in that is that it misunderstands really the drivers of mass incarceration, right? So when we think about, you know, generally the way that the society um, as its organ, the forces and societies to organize around the condition that black people are in, the combination of deindustrialization, the combination of the war on drugs, and a variety of other um, particular ways that the system of white supremacy impacts black people. Um, one, and, and, and again, in talking about mass incarceration, you have the, the lack of access to opportunity right the lack of economic mobility and so in many ways the illicit market the drug trade selling guns those are the greatest levels of access to capital in many respects that you know these working class uh, black communities have um, in baltimore and places really around the country and so what you have is you have a context where folks are dealing in illegal markets where you don't have the protection of law enforcement, right? If, if you wanna protect your interests, you have to do it yourself. In a way that if you're trading on Wall Street, there are all kinds of policies and things that protect your ability to navigate that space. And so I'm mentioning all that because with the war on drugs and mass incarceration, you have policies that are made with this overarching societal stigma that these are criminal people that want to do havoc, they're pathological, they have no regard for themselves, their families and humanity. That is the overarching narrative that is used to characterize a community and a particular profile of folks amongst black people and in these communities. And so what then happens is then you have the tough on crime policies. Central among them are things like sense enhancements. The idea being that we need to increase penalties for certain violent crimes in order to deter violence, right? And so I think the, so in, so in terms of sentencing enhancements, one of the things that happened after the uprising here in Baltimore is that there was a spike in violence. And over, the, and over those couple of years, um, there seemed, there was more anxiety about how to deal with violence. Now, when you think about it from the perspective of those in the corporate sector, that don't have an interest in uplifting black communities, right? They'll say they do, right? But they're thinking more about like the real estate opportunities that they're losing by the narrative of Baltimore being dangerous and violent. So the idea was to put forward these sense enhancements that would make it so that criminals get punished, 
right? And so one of the central fights, like particularly in 2018, former state senator um, Bobby Zirkin, who used to be chair of the Judicial Proceedings Committee, a Baltimore County Democrat, who put forward sense enhancements, right? So things that would increase penalties for possessions of firearms and possession of firearm and commission of a violent crime. And for most people, that sounds like common sense. Like, oh, if a person is using guns, then why are we trying to be lenient towards people using guns? And what we've had to explain to people is that most of the convictions that people have come from plea deals, right? Where people are, you know, the, the court system is overridden with cases. And so there are plea deals that a person may take a charge because it's just, the, the prosecutor thinks it's, it'll take less time and it's the easiest thing that they can offer, right? To, so a part of what we would argue is, is that we're not saying that we wanna be leaning against folks necessarily who are using firearms to harm people. What we're saying is that we recognize that given over-policing, the system of mass incarceration, enhancing sentences on gun-related crimes instead of going after folks and convicting them of murder or armed robbery or burglary, they're heightening the criminalization of things that they understood to be proximate to violent crime, right? So our fight against sentence enhancements in 2018 was to essentially stop those sentence enhancements that would increase, you know, mass incarceration. Similarly with the Oda bill, you know, Maryland legalized recreational cannabis in 2023. And your law enforcement is used to using cannabis prohibition policy as a way to essentially get around the Fourth Amendment, right? As a way to violate, you know, people's right to privacy and excessive search and seizure. And so um, and so the odor of cannabis and, you know, cannabis is an odor that can that lingers, that stays around. Right. Um, and so and so often law enforcement would use it to justify invading people's privacy and use it as a pretext to um, stop people. And we know that the data shows that it was black people who are the folks um, and other folks of color, black and brown folk, that would be those impacted by that. So, um, and so that was a tough fight because prosecutors and law enforcement, they see that as an important part of their approach to enforcing the law. That part of the war on drugs, what it did was it, it created a context for how, how law enforcement did its work that wasn't based on actually addressing violence. It was based on chasing drugs, right? And that chasing drugs meant chasing violence. But the underlying assumption that drugs auto automatically means that you're dealing with violence, right? That you're dealing with criminality, right? And for a lot of people, that's a difficult thing because of the pop culture and the way that people are socialized to connect those two things. But when you actually look at the data, what you see is that majority of the homicides, for instance, whether it's from George's County and Baltimore City, data that we've looked at, the majority of those homicides are not connected to drug trafficking, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so the, can, the, the older piece, again, was just another way to push back against law enforcement using the kind of racialized notions of criminality, criminality as it relates to black people to advance over policing. Um, and I, last thing I'll say about the fight, what we've done over the years and many other organizations have pushed back against the control that law enforcement and prosecutors have had over those committees. And I would argue that some of what we're seeing is a, is a reaction to that, that, that the loss of power from prosecutors and law enforcement, there's a deep desire to push back against.
instead. Yeah, and, and I think I think it's an interesting point you make about the sort of liberal assumption about nonviolent offenders, uh, because that's always the argument is all of these people are locked up for nonviolent drug offenses, and and it's like there was a time when that happened, um, but that that time is not now. Um, and similarly, there was a time when much of the crime was driven by or time and place where much of the crime was driven by drug trade, but that time is not now. And the argument has not caught up with the facts, you know, in a lot of cases. And I think the other thing that is interesting there is in order to justify massive police budgets and over-policing and militarization, they need to be able to prove that there's a violent imminent threat um, that is existing to everybody and so they use guns to suggest violence and they use drugs to find or they use the smell of cannabis in order to find guns mm. you know it, it seems like that's what is happening is they are trying to justify their large budgets and their large amount of power um and you know once people say a lot of those stops are nonviolent, they say well let's enhance the sentences uh, you know, so it, 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 it's interesting the way you put it together, but it starts to make sense about how the narrative misses misses what's happening there. In another realm of that, you, you wrote an article uh, re, uh, last year, I believe, about called Who Are the Real Criminals? In which you talk about what you know to be the drivers of violent crime and what the common perceptions are. You touched on that a little bit, but can you get in a little deeper into that? Yeah, so one of the impacts on the system of racism and white supremacy <clears throat> on the collective american consciousness is the images that are made most available about majority black communities particularly in urban areas is the belief of that though that people in those communities are inherently violent and pathological and that's a really important aspect to understand the lens by which policy is being made because I would argue, I was actually just listening to an interview on BAL radio with a uh, Republican Senator, Senator Justin Reedy. Um, and, you know, a big part of what they talk about is, you know, we need to show people accountability that when, when the bad guys do bad things that they have to do the time, right? And see, to me, it demonstrates a lack of understanding both of what people are currently doing to address the violence in our own communities. And it, and, and it lacks an understanding of the complex dynamics at play that would lead people to engage in what someone might describe as criminal behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm a person where I live in a community where I know people have guns or firearms, and let's say I, you know, I cut grass, right? It's a cash industry, you know, people are giving me cash and I have a gun because I wanna protect myself. And I happen to get into a big argument on the corner and it escalates into a fight. There's a way that that gets characterized as I'm criminal, right? The overarching narratives received, there's a lack of willingness to even hear, well, what actually happened, mm -hmm. right? Because of the, of the large scale societal propaganda, it gets, it gets formulated to, and, and that person's humanity then becomes under question because it's like they have to prove they're not a bad person. But under, uh, under any other circumstance, right, we would want to hear, well, actually, what happened, right? And then when you hear the whole story, one would think, like, okay, that's actually, that actually makes sense. That is, that is a rational set of decisions that this person made. And part of the problem with the, what the media does 
is that we see so many stories of like heinous acts of crime in ways that make it almost impossible for people to, to recognize that more often than not, it is not those that are the predominant circumstances people find themselves in. It's usually more complicated than that. Like the like kind of the example I get just gave, where it's usually more complicated than that. But because of that large scale propaganda, it creates a context where a person who is, you know, someone that's wreaking havoc in the community is being treated the same like the like the person that I that I described. And so in the piece, like who are the real criminals? A part of what I'm trying to call attention to is the way that these societal narratives impact policy in a way that criminalizes things that for for the average person would be a rational thing to do. So if you're a person that lives in West Baltimore, you know, you don't come from a family of means, you're trying to figure out how to make a living and you decide to engage in the drug trade and you decide and you understand that you need a weapon to do it, that is a rational decision, right? And that's not saying that folks should condone it, right? Or that it's good that they're doing it. It is a rational decision. One of the challenges, I think, with, again, with some of, you know, liberals and progressives and even talking about this is there is a big, because of that nonviolent drug offender trope, there is a way that even those that see themselves as sympathetic on the issue, right, there's a certain limit in terms of the, the kind of respectability politics that they're kind of projecting on to Black people, that they don't want to be seen as defending a drug dealer, right? They don't want to be seen as defending someone who is, you know, a, a violent gang member, right? A thug, right? They don't want to be seen as supporting that, right? And so there's, and, and one of the things we say is those people for whom people would characterize as thugs, right? As drug dealers, they're human beings too, mm -hmm. right? And, and that the question we got to ask ourselves is if we're serious about challenging racism and white supremacy, we got to be willing to be okay with the fact that, yes, the humanity of a person who is selling drugs, who doesn't intend on causing havoc in the community, they just want to do their thing, right? So that they can make whatever living they make and bother as least amount of people as possible, right? And they get into a big altercation, right? For me, that person's a human being. They're making a rational choice. What I condone it, I don't condone it but they're making a rational choice. And if we approach everyone in those kind of circumstances, like they're bad people, given the fact that there are all these other kinds of corruption that happens, that's legalized, that we wanna make out the folks that I'm describing as bad people, there's no way that the community can be empowered if we don't address the fact that this is a community of human beings that are making rational choices and the law enforcement apparatus should not be weaponized against them Mm -hmm. But we should be trying to figure out how to create the alternatives so that folks can have other, better, rational decisions as opposed to allowing the criminal justice system to be weaponized against them. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of assumption in that that is like a lot of over-assumption about how powerful organized crime and criminal gangs and things like that are that come from mass media, that come from the news and things like that. Uh, and I think one of the things you point out there and that Lawrence and I talked about last week is that like oftentimes a lot of violence that occurs is interpersonal disputes that 
right. uh, have nothing to do with organized crime. Um, and it doesn't mean that folks on either side of that interpersonal dispute may not be engaged in some activity that might or might not be criminal, but they're not uh, a targeted hit or, the, you know, whenever I go to, I always find it interesting when I go to neighborhood association meetings and the police are there and they're talking about anybody that has been killed in Baltimore recently. And mm-hmm. they try to assure people, don't worry about it. It was targeted as if. Um, that suddenly means like you don't need to care at all. And, right. and oftentimes it's like, well, sure, it was targeted, but like, what what does that mean? Um, and what it's supposed to mean is don't worry. But what I've often found it means is like, yeah, you're right. Like my nephew, he, you know, people will say like my nephew, yeah, he sold some weed and they killed him for it. But that doesn't mean that like, he, you know, and, and so I think there's this thing that happens where, the assumption of any crime um, absolves folks of having to feel bad about um, that 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 activity, and you know, I just I think that is part of the narrative. Is and to your point, is part of the construction of black people as sort of inherently criminal, waiting for the moment when they break from civil society and and pick up a gun. You know, mm-hmm. and I think we've also talked. I think. The pushback on that has to both be uh, in policy, but also in in the culture and in the discourse. And we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, in the last couple of years, the shift has become, um, as it does cyclically, focused on on young people, on children. Um, and so uh, there's been a lot of controversy, and you all have written about it, about a bill called the Child Interrogation Protection Act. Um, can you explain what it does, why you support it? And um, then in the next bit, we'll get into like how it's been mischaracterized. Yeah. So for people that are familiar with the, I guess they were formerly the Central Park Five, the Exonerated Five in New York City, the story of five young men who were accused of sexual assaulting a white woman jogger in Central Park. And the idea was that law enforcement essentially coerced them into making statements that led to them being incarcerated. Child interrogation, and then that's something, while that's a situation that happened in, in New York, that's something that has happened around the country. There are folks in Baltimore who have been, who have spent significant time in jail who are exonerated um, as a result of that practice. So what the bill does is that it, it primarily does two things. It requires that when a law enforcement officer is engaged in a custodial interrogation, that a parent is notified and the young person gets to consult with an attorney. Right. The idea being that a young person needs to know their rights, need to know what, you know, the the ways that they should interact with law enforcement. And um, so that's I mean, that's really simply what it does. Right. It's very simple. And and so um, is is that basically the same rights that older that the older people have just making sure that it is explicit that children have those rights as well? That's right. 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 So. That's what it does, and obvious why you support it, right? Because mm-hmm. it's good to be able to give people their their constitutional rights, whether they're adults or children. Um, but since the last legislative session, it has been the subject of a lot of media and political focus in order to basically lie about what it does uh, and pave the way for this for some regressive policy. And the local Sinclair-owned station, uh, Fox Forty Five, whose owner now recently bought the only print, uh, you know, the only daily print newspaper in town, the Baltimore Sun, has played a large role in this. And it's looked like, so I guess I'm, 
what does it say about the way that what does the Fox 45 treatment and distortion of this bill say about this bill um, and like the, the larger role that media plays in this? So <clears throat> I think that um, that's why I like talking so much about the way that notions of black notions of inherent black criminality and inferiority are so central because you know, we wouldn't want anything else for anyone else, right? Like a person should have, you know, a child should be able to consult their parent or have their parent notified and consult with an attorney. And because of, you know, when homicide rates or fatal shooting or non-fatal shootings are up or carjackings, but when those things are up, it's to me, it seems clear that there's a willingness to um, denigrate or, or at the very least lack a regard for the humanity of black people, particularly black youth. There's this, uh, Sylvia Winter in a letter she wrote to some faculty, I forget what school she was teaching at the time, around the time of the Los Angeles uprising against the Rodney King, the verdict, the officers that be Rodney King getting acquitted. And she talked about how the word that the phrase that police officer you used to refer to a crime scene where black people had killed each other the word the phrase they used that the acronym was nhi and it stands for no humans involved right and i would argue that that is the paradigm i think by which when people look at the black community in general and black youth in particular that I think there is a lack of regard for the humanity of black youth because there's a lack of expectation. There's a, again, the, uh, beliefs that they're handling inferior and the like, and handling criminal. And so what the Child Interrogation Protection Act is to prosecutors and law enforcement is an impediment to punishing these violent, out of control animals, non-human. Right. That is that is the underlying framework for that desire to repeal the China Interrogation Protection Act. Right. They see it as an impediment. And even when law, you know, law enforcement has said and Fox 45 has said, well, they can't even talk to youth now. So youth are allowed to run rampant as a person that sat in the voting session in the Senate when they were trying to move the bill out of committee. There's a public safety exception in the bill that we were trying to get the committee to exclude from the bill, but it got voted onto the bill, which says that if an officer perceives an imminent public safety threat, there is an exception to it. Right. So law enforcement, when they say to people, well, if something crazy is happening, we need to talk to a young person that gets in our way. It demonstrates either a lack of knowing the law or just a desire not to follow it. Right. And so. And so that the propaganda, Fox 45, it being, you know, right wing, you know, Sinclair Broadcasting, having a very conservative right wing perspective. One of the things that is the most troubling in a state with a Democratic Party supermajority in both chambers of the legislature, with now a Democratic governor, Fox 45 propaganda it's frustrating that there haven't been the forces in the legislature who passed that law and some of the other juvenile justice reforms to push back, right? To to openly advocate the other position, the position that that I that I've given. That that 
elected officials outside of Senator Carter, who they've been attacking, you know, all year last year and continue to attack this year, that other legislators haven't stepped up when they're being viciously attacked by Fox 45. Like they're chasing down Speaker Jones, mm-hmm. right? They're chasing down Bill Ferguson. And their response should be a full-throated pushback rebuttal to the propaganda, right? But they're even tepid about that. And so what I would argue is that to me, it's an example in a state that is, you know, supposed to be very progressive, that's super blue. To me, it's one of those examples of a kind of bipartisan um, consensus when it comes to issues that impact working class black people, mm-hmm. that that the that public safety and the kind of conservative position that Fox 45 and Sinclair Broadcast has taken on the issue actually doesn't stray too far from what the Democratic Party establishment also believes about black people. And I think it's important for, you know, folks in Maryland to be clear about that, to not be seduced into thinking because we have a new governor a black governor who's a great dude, he's a great person, yeah. right? And we have legislative leadership that is moving further to the left, not because they want to, but they're being pushed to. To be clear that the response to Fox 45 by Democrats shows who they really are, which is that they're not the progressives that they want some people to believe that they are. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I've started to think recently is... Um, Tough on crime bills are the tax on Democrats for trying to engage in progressive universalist policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and they, and they are happy to pay that tax, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they think it's their patriotic duty to pay that tax and, and they do. And we end up in places like that. And I think that transitions well into, you know, you wrote a book, um, you wrote a book called Worse Than Trump in which you discussed the political limitations of the Democratic Party and the left in our current political order. Given now today that we are in that political order, um, you know, we can talk about changing it toward the end of this. But given that we're in that political order now, um, can you talk? You talked a little bit about the politics of crime, criminal justice and juvenile crime. But do you want to expand on like how those alliances work a little bit? Absolutely. So. So, again, the dominant narrative around notions of inherent black criminality. Right. And, and, and there's an there's an existential psycho existential element. Um, or a psychosocial and existential element to it. And what I mean by that is this, that the American dream, so to speak, the house, white picket fence, kind of isolated from community, the height of convenience, all the spoils and benefits of settler colonialism, right? Of course, that's not the conscious thinking of it, but that's what it is materially, how it's configured. And so you take that and then the question then becomes when you're dealing with, you know, black folks in, you know, urban communities, as I mentioned before, their only access to to real capital, drug trade, illicit market, and the need to protect oneself in an unregulated illicit market. So you take all those things together, right? And And I think a part of where the alignment comes in is that I think criminal justice, the criminal justice system is a mechanism of social control to maintain the kind of American fiction, 
right? The idea of this kind of meritocracy that is righteous, that is the city on the hill, that is this highly moral, righteous. So, and, and so there's that mythology. And so with, with a lack of recognition of the role that people with the level of comfort this society is able to afford the complicity that folks have in the creation of the conditions that produce the, the violence that, that we've been talking about. And instead, and, and so in order to confront, in order to confront that would require a confrontation with the privileges that the society has configured, largely for white folks and folks who are proximate to the networks that white folks historically have created for the settler colonial project to perpetuate itself. So another way of putting it and, and extending on the, the piece around the alignment around criminal justice system and white supremacy and, and all the things that we've been talking about is that black people who are able to navigate the society from a position of sovereignty and strength with a self-concept that sees our own humanity. You know, Amos Wilson once said that the phenomena of violence and homicide in cities around the country is an externalization of a suicidal impulse. That when you don't have a healthy love for yourself and knowledge of self and you have this all this propaganda that tells you you're worthless, you're nothing, you're criminal, it's easy to do harm to someone that looks like you, right? And so the kind of self-love, the affirmative self-love, self-knowledge for people of African descent to operate in a society from a position of sovereignty and strength is disruptive to this kind of American dream narrative that valorizes law enforcement, right? That valorizes the systems of the status quo. And, it, and when really the, the uprising in 2015 with the Department of Justice report in 2016 is one of the first most recent evidence of the systematic nature of police violence against black people, right? And one of the ways that white supremacy operates is a fundamental lack of regard for the humanity for black people such that there are certain kinds of violence that is visited upon working class black people on a daily basis that doesn't matter, mm -hmm. right? That people don't register. One of the things I was on a radio show the other day, kind of explaining the dynamic, my issue with the juvenile justice bill that leadership put forward last week. And one of the things, and the person in the interview kept saying, well, Davon, what about the victims? What about the victims' fans? And I said, well, I care about the victims of people who've been hurt by carjacking or robbery, that's important. But the other, the other victims are people for whom their lives, their, their life is irreparably harmed by contact with the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. right? So, so to your in terms of like that alignment, it is that fundamental lack of regard for the humanity of people of African descent, in order to secure a lifestyle and a sense of self, and a kind of lack of self awareness about the nature of how the society works, mm -hmm. right? That. You know, white folks in the suburbs want to think if you just do what you're supposed to do and do good things, life will be fine. Right. In order to but in terms of the criminal justice system, and criminal justice policy, they would have to admit law enforcement is organized as an institution to undermine humanity and people of African descent. They'd have to admit the lack of regard for people of Africa. There's a confrontation with the with the true nature of the society that they benefit from that they'd rather not engage. Right. And I think the Democrats and liberals desperately want to try to find a solution 
that does not require a confrontation with that reality. Right. Like they want a liberal solution that allows this system to provide the answer to that question without that radical confrontation with the fact that this system may not be able to, this political order may not be able to answer that question. That's right. Um, and, and so uh, with that, let's shift to these bills, right? Like, um, so uh, the 2024 bills on juvenile crime, and today you testified against these bills that the Democratic leadership uh, put out. Last week at the press conference to introduce these bills, Senate President Bill Ferguson is, Ferguson is quoted by WPR as saying, uh, while youth offenders account for less than 10% of the crime committed, unfortunately, it is clear that they've become the biggest part of the crime perception problem in Maryland. Um, I find this quote a fascinating way to introduce a bill that, that, that further punishes young people. But uh, I want to use this as an introduction to the topic. Can you talk about that quote a bit? And then let us know what these bills do specifically um, and why you oppose them. So I'm going to plug um lbs the streets of the state house the last episode i did on monday i believe it was to give a fuller explanation but the shortest version i can give you is that so what's not on the table is whether or not young people that commit heinous crimes should be held accountable for what they do right that's what the media wants people to believe media wants people to believe that some people that want um, young people that commit heinous crimes to be accountable, and there are others that don't. And that's not what's on the table. And and that's what Governor Moore wants people to believe, too. I mean, that's what right. he said in the state of the state yesterday. Right, right. And and so what's on the table are retaining the mechanisms that the juvenile justice reforms produced for opportunities for diversion to deal with young people in, the, in a case-by-case and -case in individual circumstances. Right. So an example that I'll give, it's like, you know, you have a 16 year old, they got a 14 year old cousin, a 12 year old cousin. The 16 year old has a record. They've done stuff like this before. They sue the car to 14, 12 year olds in there. Right. Or the um, let's let's say uh, 11 and 12 year old. Right. So 16 year old, 11, 12 year old. Right. It makes sense for the 16 year old. Right. To have a more severe punishment. Right. It makes sense that it needs to, you know, accountability, so to speak, needs to go further. But if the 11, 12 year old have no history of, of committing crimes, right, that it wasn't their idea, they're with their older cousin. With the bill that leadership proposes does, it expands original jurisdiction such that they have to get processed and the extent to which they get services would have to come through the Department of Juvenile Services. Anybody that works with young people. The idea is you want to keep them out of the system at all costs, because once you process young people in the system, it's hard for them to get out. And even though juvenile, the Department of Juvenile Services is better than adult jail, and the, there aren't many things on planet Earth that are better than adult jail. So even though, um, or worse rather, worse than adult jail. Um, Department of Juvenile Services is better than adult jail, but we, we don't want young people to interact with the system at all. And there's still adverse consequences to any contact with Department of Juvenile Services. And so the idea is to maintain the ability on the front end. So you take that 11 to 12, you say, you know what? We're going to you know, make sure that they're not hanging out with the 16-year-old again. We're going to make sure we get them the right supports. You know, this doesn't need to be something that, they're pro that they need to be processed by. Right? This, we, don't, we don't need that for them. 
right? So, so again, what the bill they propose does is that it expands original jurisdiction such that they would have to be processed as well, which enters them into the system. Now, what 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 they'll say is, well, they will then require them to be detained, right? And sure, it doesn't require them to be detained, but whoever and however the agency is being ran, historically, folks who go into the system, right, one should not expect um, incarceration and detention in those cases not to be on the table, right? Because now you're leaving it up to who's making the assessment as to the character, right, of this 11 and 12 year old. So the idea is you want as much as possible for them not to interact with the system. And again, what the leadership bill does is that it reduces the mechanisms by which the, those front-end interventions can take place for young people that are more appropriately dealt with outside of the Department of Juvenile Services. Yeah, and it seems like it is based on the idea that to solve the problem, uh, to solve the problem it sees, it, the best actor is the Department of Juvenile Services and not the community and not the church and not the organizations that have been trying um, to prevent violence and prevent crime. Um, you know, and, and it, the idea that in the state of Maryland, the best services that can be provided are by the criminal justice system um, is, is a strikingly yeah. like devastating one, right? Like, yeah. and if it's true, it's an even larger indictment of the way that the resources are given to communities and the programs that are working, right? Like next week, we're gonna talk about the economics of all of this. And we're gonna talk about, um, you know, what a just tax system looks like, what reparations look like and things like that. But I think it's really interesting that, the, and it's not just, uh, one thing I noticed is there were a lot of people standing behind the leadership at that press conference that I would not expect to stand behind a bill like this. Um, Unless it was in this climate where the governor and the Senate president felt like they needed to do something because of a perception created by Fox 45 and some prosecutors. And I think it's just really interesting to see um, that the choice they've made has been to bring more and younger people into the system uh, as a means of rehabilitating them, as Governor Moore said. And it, it, it doesn't take you know, it doesn't take extensive study about prisons to understand how that language has always been part of the problem. Uh, and it seems to me that widening the net to bring more and younger people in is not a great way to care for children. Yeah, I mean, I think the part of the problem is, and, I, you know, the example that I use, like, I think when we talk about the impact of colonialism. You know, one of the impacts of colonialism is that the colonizer is able to control the institutions that provide life-sustaining um, things for that community, right? So the so the the colonists controls your water, your food, controls your health, all of that, and that's the condition that you know people of African descent find ourselves in in, in this kind of settler colonial environment. And so part of the impact of that is that then you have to be strategic about how you resist because you have to think about the short-term needs of what well, people need water and food and those kind of life-sustaining things, right? So, so that's part of the power of colonialism, right? Is that they're able to starve you, right? That the system is able to make you reliant on it in a way that limits your ability to resist. And I use that as an analogy here because 
the systems that are tasked with empowering or providing really services to the community, you know, foster care, Department of Social Services, it's widely known that those systems are in disarray, mm-hmm. right? But no, but pol- the, the political establishment, the media doesn't care about that, right? And if they were serious about the condition that young people find themselves in, well, years ago, we would have been looking at just the harm that's done by those systems that are traditionally tasked with dealing with our community, right? And so, the, so to your point, the idea that the provision of services is gonna come through processing people in DJS, recognizing that a lot of those front end services have been hollowed out, have been disinvested in, right? So, uh, so it creates, so, so it puts them in a position where they say, look, we have to do something and doing something is better than nothing. Right. And that is a choice that is a result of political determinations that have been made over many years. But that's not something that should be placed at the feet of young people. Right. Right. That's something that as a community that that the community needs to take responsibility for, like take responsibility for the fact that policies have been put in place that do not make the proper investments in our young people. Right. And so the 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 decision that we should make is that we need to focus on building that front end infrastructure and doing what we can in the meantime to deal with the issues that young people are faced with, as opposed to deciding to make them more susceptible to the criminal justice system. And I find that, you know, one of the things, and, you know, I I wouldn't necessarily use this platform to go in depth into the thing that I'm about to say, but I'll mention it because I think it's an important dynamic. There's a way that people of African descent have internalized these notions of inherent pathology and criminality that many of us then are okay with young people being disposable. We're okay with, well, we got to do something. That's what we're going to do. Right. And, and so I think there's a way that Fox 45 and Sinclair broadcasting has taken advantage of that. Right. Because you'll see black folks put on television, elected officials saying, yeah, we need to, you know, send them to jail and you need to straighten up. And so Fox 45 takes advantage of that current within, um, you know, the black community in a way that I think becomes politically potent, such that the Democrats are caving to a clearly right wing propaganda machine that under no circumstance will ever praise them or support them or anything else they do. Right. And, and I thought it was interesting, like, you know, I think that dichotomy was there in Governor Moore's speech yesterday when he talked a lot about efforts to end childhood poverty and then and to get SNAP benefits and to help with schools. And he really emphasized that we need to care for children. At the same time, he was talking about incorporating more of them into the juvenile justice system. And it seems that there's an assumption that, um, you know, like, well, that all of the above approach still incorporates bad practices, right? Mm-hmm. And it is, um, you know, I thought that was really interesting that there was such an emphasis on, on children um, and, and in positive ways, and also a mean a need to get them into the justice system in order to rehabilitate them. And I thought that that was, um, you know, especially while talking about partnering with communities, uh, things like that. It was like partnering with communities in order to do the work on the front end so the kids aren't ending up there and then have the networks in place in order to be able to help if somebody does end up there. That seems like the logical answer. But I guess the other thing he didn't say yesterday or the other thing 
He mentioned taxes one time, and he talked about budget and revenue shortfalls a bunch of times. So while he's not willing to raise taxes on wealthy people uh, and corporations, he is willing to cut transit and community college, which are services that working class people use in order to um, move out of you know, move out of the condition that they're in. So it's an interesting set of forces that are uh, arrayed right now on this bill. And I guess that's, that leads me to this next question. Um, you know, I've been reading these Paul Gilroy conversations that he's hosted at the SPRC, where he likes to ask these questions about the balance of forces on a given issue. And I really like that framing, like what are the balance of forces on this? Um, and um, so I want to I wanna ask that on this particular bill, who's lined up on what side of it what is the fight going to look like? And what does the strategy have to be to the extent that you want to share it um, to, to fight against it? I mean, the forces that are in support of it, law enforcement and prosecutors, I think, are driving the, the push towards it. I think the Democratic Party leadership, there are elements of it that support it, quite frankly. The elements of the Democratic Party that are conservative on these issues um, and one quick aside, I think that contributes to the kind of Hogan Democrat phenomena, right? Like, I think a lot of those people that are like Hogan Democrats have required or um, explicit folks are about it. There's So there's certainly that element that supports it. Um, I think on the other side, you have like, you know, criminal justice advocates and grassroots organizations that are opposing it. Um, you know, like myself, you have the NAACP, um, ACLU of Maryland, the Maryland Ju uh, Youth Justice Coalition, um, the Public Defender. So, you know, so you have a variety of like, you know, progressive organizations, grassroots organizations. I'll go back to something that I referenced a moment ago, which is I think Black folks are mixed. I think the framing of it is extremely important. I think progressive groups who are in agreement kind of with us on the issue don't do well in talking to black people about the issue, right? And so, and part of what I mean is, is that if you, that, that Gaucho report that came out back in October, right? That's like, you know, white Democrats want leniency, black, you know, 62% white Democrats want leniency, 62 black folks want accountability that's a bad um that's a false choice right that we want accountability but we want as much as possible for young people who don't who should not be in the criminal justice system to not be there right so i think on so that is the piece of it that is that is complex and and i think so in terms of understanding the power the power i think is like talking to black folks who again are mixed on the issue because i mean you know we're only 30 percent of the state which is significant um i think in the context of the democratic party that's even more significant right but i'm also saying that i think that the, there's a way that black folks are weaponized on this issue mm -hmm. in a way that it's important for non-black folks who have the perspective that we share to be conscious of, right? And also non-Black folks talking to other non-Black folks about the dynamics at play and, and helping to explain why it is that certain Black people would 
be more conservative. Mm-hmm. Not because they are believers in the system per se, right? But you got folks that are just dealing with day-to-day things that are right in front of them. And an elder that wants to get to their door when they go to the grocery store, this stuff happening and they don't want that anymore. Right. And they're not given a bunch of other options. Right. And so recognizing that we have to address that, like we have to have ways to address that circumstance, because I think other under under other circumstances that grandmother would also say, I don't want that 11 and 12 year old in that car to be treated like the 16 year old who was driving it. Right. Right. And so it's like learning how to like deepening the conversation about it to be able to bring people to our side and recognize the nuances and complexity. Yeah. And and, and I, I learned a lot about this and knocking doors in East Baltimore uh, in 2018 and having these conversations with folks who were saying, like, look, my block is not safe. I do not feel safe going outside. I can't keep my garden out anymore. I can't do this, that and the other. Um, and and. I think there's a tendency, there's an absolutist tendency, the further left you get, that sort of says we shouldn't lock anybody up. And sure, in the utopia, like I'm, I'm, I'm there. Yeah. Um, in the now we are, and in the sort of in between time, we got to get better at that, you know, but it is that, that's why I started with that framing, because it is like, uh, the, the sort of abolition, the abolition feminist approach is, yes, of course we want abolition. Um, and in the meantime, we need to stop laws like this one. And in the next phase, we need to figure out how to make sure that we don't have to treat the 11 year old the same as we treat the 16 year old. And and I think that nuance is often missing from people on my, you know, in my position. And, and that's one of the reasons I want to dive into this, because I think it's easy for folks to say, well, you know, none of those people should should go to, to yeah. jail. And let me say something real quick about that, the abolition yeah. piece, because, again, I'm 100 percent with you, like Western civilization and the prison regime in the West is out of step with other advanced civilizations in world history. Right. And so then there's a way that the prison and police regime is normalized because most people don't know much about any other advanced civilizations. And one of the impacts of white supremacy and the collective consciousness is that people don't believe that there were any other advanced civilizations outside of European ones. Right. And so um, so I think part of it is like people just recognizing there were advanced civilizations that had that did not have this prison policy regime. And so uh, prison and police regime. So ultimately, we want to organize and structure a society where, you know, prisons and police are obsolete. That is that is that is the ultimate goal. I think part of the challenge is, is that we have to build the alternative mechanisms to operationalize what that society looks like. Like it's not enough to say we don't want prisons. Right. Like that's not enough. Like we have to what we have to build the the you know, structures of human organization that facilitate an environment that produces a functional society that doesn't need prisons and police. And those societies have existed. Mm-hmm. We should study how, what they did and figure out how to build off of that. And that requires us navigating the existing systems. And I think we can't be so um, invested in the brand of abolition such that we can't say things like 
a kid that shoots their parent in the face in the society that we currently live in. In the current political order. In, in the current political order, our community does not have other mechanisms of accountability. Right. Like they don't, they don't exist in any functional way. Now there's societies, I know in New Zealand, there's actually a really interesting system of accountability we don't have time to talk about now. So there are societies that do it better, but yep. in the current context we're in, like I don't feel any insecurity as a person who has written about and has stated in public that ultimately abolition is where we need to go, but we can't be so invested in the brand of abolition that we can't say to our community Right. Who will who will look at me crazy if I'm like, yeah, no, we shouldn't lock anybody up. And they're, they're, what they're going to say is, okay, then what what are we going to do? And you got to have real answers to that question. If you don't have real answers to that question, you can't organize. You're not going to bring people to your side. And we're not going to bring people into, because I feel like I'm positioned, given the fact that I'm acknowledging the reality, that I can bring people to an abolitionist position, right, in ways that other people who are so invested in the brand cannot because they won't just acknowledge that in the current political order, there's some people from whom the mechanisms of accountability we have is the prison regime. We want to reduce as much harm that it does as possible while we're building an alternative that can replace it. Right. And, and, and I mean, that, that, that's why, I, I mean, I would say like this book, this, you know, it's Angela Davis, Gina Dent, Erica Myers, and Beth Ritchie. And they're chronicling people who are fighting the system right now, who are engaging in aggressive confrontations with the now while trying to build for that in between with abolition as, as the end goal. And I think that framing sets up this conversation in a really useful way because absent that, it can feel like, oh, this is a reformist reform or something like that, what we should really, and it is like, you can't skip the steps. Um, and, and, and that's a good transition to where I want to go next. So like, let's abstract from these bills a little bit and talk about what it looks like to build that system a bit. And in your, in your article, um, called the woke straw man that you wrote last year, you wrestle with the sort of way that the mainstreaming of these questions about social justice, um, has made the work of justice and radical politics much harder. Uh, and in, there's a quote you have here that I want to use to frame the next phase of this, which is sort of talking about the in-between, abstracted a little bit from the now, but not the abolitionist view yet. And so you say, the reality is that Maryland is a deeply unjust place and will require radical political activity in order to address the conditions of our communities. We need policies that are intentional about investing in collective black wealth creation. Major investments in community accountable black and brown led anti-violence interventions or uh, interventions and, that protect black and brown people from the abuses of law enforcement and the immigration system and many other policies that would constitute moving toward racial justice. Um, so we talked a little bit about what that looks like, but in, in the time between now and the future, um, what is the political activity that needs to happen uh, and the solutions that it would pursue? I mean, I would say a part of it is there are people in the community already doing the work of trying to address themselves to community safety, right, to violence prevention. So a part of it is, and part of the challenge is, is that we have, you know, traditional white-led corporate nonprofits that have gobbled up the space and are, and in some ways are occupying that space in ways that take from those grassroots formations that can reduce um, those forms of community safety. And, and so part of what happens is that any advocacy that is done on the criminal justice system and trying to mitigate its harm 
should be informed by understanding the terrain around the work that's being done to build these alternative systems, right? Sometimes what I think happens, what I've observed happens, is that you have folks that are see themselves as allies, that are progressive, um, that will say things, and I'll give one, like one example, for instance, is that, you know, when people talk about like violence and homicide and, you know, urban areas like Baltimore, though, you know, people will say, and people used to term black on black crime, right? And so people will say, well, you don't say white on white crime, you know? And one of the things that, you know, my reaction to that is sure, but the central question still remains, right? How do we address ourselves to the problem that it is pointing to, right? And so those of us that are engaged in advocacy to fight back against the criminal justice system, the best versions of the argument take that into consideration. But part of what happens is, <clears throat> is that particularly the moderates and the right wing in Maryland are using those, the straw man, right? They're using the woke straw man to say, well, they're, what they're really saying is, you know, criminals should never be held accountable and criminals should be, you know, like they, that that straw man. And, and so, so I think to your question, the part what I'm suggesting is the advocacy that's done should have in mind the work that's being done to build those alternative systems <clears throat> so that when they're making the argument, they're making the argument in a way that helps to build the base and build people in support of our policy position. Otherwise, what that woke straw man does, the reason why they use the woke straw man is because they know that the argument without its nuances can sound ridiculous to a person who, again, has these immediate challenges around the things happening in a community they want solutions to. And, and in many cases, the politicians who are making uh, the politicians who and the media folks who are utilizing this actually have better connections than the advocates um, to those communities and are actually talking to more people from those communities and use those conversations and relationships to inform their propaganda. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so I think, you know, one of the things that I thought most interesting about reading Malaya Cromer's book on Hogan was the sections where she talks about how Hogan was actually quite comfortable going into black communities because he had grown up in them and he knew how to carry himself and to interact. And so he had um, an access that Democrats had a hard time predicting um, and, a, and a resonance that Democrats had a hard time predicting because he understood what was happening in those places. And I think it's really interesting, the, the caution, the cautionary tale there about like, be careful about this like do you know what you're talking about do you understand what you're talking about because it gets mischaracterized uh in a way that because the mainstreaming of these radical political concepts gets stripped of their materiality um and offered for clicks and likes and and things like that it makes it harder to do that radical politics and so what is the what is the policy so assuming that like if we want to make these community organizations and institutions stronger, uh, and we'll get into this more uh, next week, but what is what does the policy package look like um, to do that um, outside of these particular juvenile crime bills? Yeah, I mean, really, the simple answer is just more public investment in grassroots community-based violence prevention. Um, and, and that's one of the things, you know, we talked about Sinclair Broadcasting and Fox 45, 
they're already trying to criminalize those alternatives, right? Mm -hmm. the, the criminalization of safe streets and Monsi and the Thrive Program. Um, you know, they're trying to criminalize attempts at putting public investment into community-based violence prevention. Um, and like you said, we'll talk about this more next time, but those vehicles for community investment that allow to scale up those grassroots operations to expand their impact, you know, beyond Baltimore City. Um, you know, it's, it, I think that that's really where in terms of like the policy, it's public investments and in those kinds of uh, those kinds of programs. Yeah. And, you know, I noticed them. Um, I thought I noticed in Governor Moore's um, state of the state yesterday, he talked a lot about partnership, but his formation of partnership was making sure community organizations are at the table. Um, and I think what, what we talked about with what I talked about with Lawrence last week and what we're going to talk about a little bit about next week is not just a seat at the table, but control of the resources and the solutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, And that control is different. I mean, I think the part of the challenge is, is that um, historically, investments made in black people in the black community are made into institutional vehicles that we don't control, own, or operate, mm -hmm. right? And so it creates a dynamic where we don't have control over the capital. We're having to conform to a template as to how to provide the services that come from a kind of an elite, liberal, nonprofit, professional perspective as opposed to a community-informed, culturally-rooted methodology of providing service. And so I think that's the... Um, so that's the part that is that is the place where Democrats have the most anxiety. In some ways, Republicans are a little have a little less anxiety or a different kind of anxiety about this. But there's a way that Democrats have angst about the notion of black people practicing the kind of economic self-determination and particularly community control of public resources. But as it relates to community based violence prevention. Like that's if we're going to get that in a way that we can replace this current system, that's where that's going to begin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, I think the other thing that I thought was interesting, that the other part, other than the than the juvenile crime bills that Governor Moore talked about yesterday was this new evidence based um, center on gun violence. And, um, you know, like we're going to use the best public health approaches to to fight gun violence. And again, Lawrence and I talked about this last week, but it seems like the soothing of the anxiety about giving black people control over their solutions is this sort of nonprofit angle um, that is the third way, as it were, where we can, instead of giving money or instead of giving resources and power to communities, give resources and power to people who study communities uh, as the drivers of the solution. And then I think that branches well into this last question about the um, about the report that you wrote about when Baltimore awakes, uh, where you're critiquing that sort of uh, nonprofit role in the social services sector. So can you talk about that a little bit? And then like, um, yeah, talk about the when Baltimore awakes and then we'll ask the last question and we'll close up. So. So one of the things that, um, you know, in the you know last several years, the emergence of the popularization of criticizing the war on drugs, the mass incarceration and prison industrial complex. I think what has happened is what has emerged is the solutions based on human services, nonprofit social programs. And one of the things that doesn't get studied enough is the impact 
the way in which those systems actually perpetuate racism and white supremacy. Their, their approaches to human development that encourage notions of inherent black pathology that create a context where black people see empowerment through social and cultural distance from black folks and assimilation into large scale white society, which creates a context where individual black people's success is predicated off of um, distance from the community and creates a context where people are profiteering off the suffering of black people. And this phenomenon of like disaster management where folks are not trying to institute policies and programs that empower the community, but are mere sustenance, right? Merely trying to manage the disaster that exists in the community. And so when Baltimore Awakes is, is a look at the methodologies, approaches to the human social service sector, that actually advanced notions of white supremacy. One, I'll give one prominent example we give. There was a documentary that was extremely popular. I would say, I guess it was the mid 2000s, the Boys of Baraka documentary. And when you look at it, it's one of the things that we cite, and we know people who were in it. Um, but when you look at the way that it was characterized, this idea that you had these kids that were their parents and families were their impediments. And the idea being, we're gonna take them to Africa at a boarding school run by white folks who don't have much knowledge of the history and culture of the young people that they're coming from. And a perspective that we're going to essentially rid them of the pathology that emerges from them being in the communities that they reside. That approach to human development, um, the best it can produce again, as an individual Black person that may be able to do reasonably well. But what it does for the community is create a cultural context where the services that are being provided are not intended on changing the community, but helping individuals navigate the oppressive conditions and systems in it. Um, and there are ways in which that, I would argue, that is just as bad as the impact that the prison industrial complex has on um, the Black community. Um, so yeah, that's, so that's, that's the general sense of like what, when Baltimore wakes is. And I think it's important for us because the solutions that were being, you know, particularly like the defund piece, now, you know, I wrote a whole piece that talked about that, that the alternative that was being emerged were more services. Mm -hmm. And our perspective is that actually could exacerbate racism and white supremacy in the community. Yeah, and, and circling back to where we started on this, you know, talking about the Urban Debate League, um, when I got here, uh, the Baltimore Urban Debate League uh, was about civic engagement. And what that mm -hmm. meant was navigating the system and being better at it and maybe doing some advocacy on behalf of it. I also believe it should be about civic engagement, but I believe it, uh, that it should be in a confrontational civic engagement that, uh, that calls out the system as it is, roots it in history, and then charts a vision that is better um you know and i think i think that um i think you know we've obviously both talked about the the role the baltimore urban debate we played in in that nonprofit industrial complex and the narrative that it talked about and we can talk about that more at some other point but i want to go like really uh, i want to close out with a really abstracting question here that is like Assume we're in a world in which those liberatory methodologies and institutions you advocate for take hold uh, and are in place. Um, how does that look in Baltimore? How does that look in Maryland? How does that change um, the world, the political order? 
Well, part of what it does is that in order for Black people to practice freedom, we need the ecosystem of institutions to to make it so that the life-generating activity is primarily produced by us, by Black people. And there has to be an approach to dealing with that because that is the only sustainable way that Black people are going to be able to ameliorate the conditions and challenges that we face. Part of the challenge is, is that much of like social programs are structured from the perspective of providing services to a person that needs to be fixed. And that creates a dynamic where the solutions, when they're framed from that perspective, require some external entity to be the basis for how we operate. So for me, and one simple way of thinking about it is like, you don't need to teach a worm what it needs to extract from the earth what it needs to perpetuate a species, right? It's a natural part of how it sustains itself, right? And part of what has happened, the dehumanization that's happened to people of African descent is a hollowing out of the fundamental humanity in terms of how human beings have structured our societies to be able to perpetuate ourselves in a way that honors our humanity, our families, our communities. And so really when Baltimore Awakes, the and I, I actually um, borrowed from Hubert Henry Harrison, his book, When Africa Awakes, he is a you know writer during the New Negro movement. He was deemed, he was called Black Socrates at one point, well-respected by many African Senate historians and scholars. Um, and hit, that book was about the fact that it was, it was critiquing those who saw themselves as allies to Black people. He used to be in the socialist movement and he left because he said, because they were critical of Marcus Garvey's race first movement. His argument was the socialists actually had their own race first movement, right? And so, but I mentioned that to say that, you know, when it comes to addressing the issues that face black people, we need to build the life-sustaining institutions, practicing community control, such that we navigate the society from a broader position of strength and power. And it requires a self-concept, it requires a social and cultural orientation that that surpasses the propaganda around notions of black inferiority that allows us to practice that freedom. And I would argue that this societal propaganda around black inferiority creates a context where, you know, the, the plantation structure, you know, one thing that Hubert Harry Harrison said in his book, um, Negro in the Nation, the difference between black people pre-Civil War, post-Civil War, pre-Civil War chattel slavery, post-Civil War wage slavery. Chattel slavery is enforced by brute force, wage slavery is enforced by starvation, right? And so the ability to control, you know, the economic condition of black people with the same kind of genealogy of the donor class, the plantation class that controls the economy then that controls it now, what has happened is that the plantation for a lot of black folks is normalized where a lot of it is we got to conform to the system to make it we got to conform to the system in order to have a chance at some kind of reasonable quality of life so when baltimore awakes the idea being is that there is no context where we are not subjects of the plantation system unless we organize ourselves in such a fashion where we are building the ability to practice sovereignty and self-determination. 
And it is only when we're building towards that, that there can be actually the prospects of freedom. Otherwise, in the human social service sector is one service sector is a extension of that plantation system where the prison system is understood to be outwardly violent and that the human social service sector is understood to be an alternative. But when in fact, what it does is that it's an extension of the plantation, right? It maintains the relationship that black people as a people have to the larger structure of society. And so really the point with when Baltimore awakes is, is that we won't be free until we fundamentally change our orientation and relationship to the American plantation. All right. Well, and I think that'll transition us well into next week when we're going to talk about economics. We're going to talk about uh, reparations. We're going to talk about ways in which resources can be moved around and in uh, the uh, different side of this conversation. So, Devon, is there anything you want to leave folks with today um, about this issue, about this criminal justice issue, uh, so that, you know, there's a, to put a fine point on it that, that allows us to close out? I'll just say thanks again for having me on, Andy. Always appreciate it. We're going to be, this juvenile justice piece is going to be a heavy lift. Um, LBSBaltimore.com is how you get our information. LBS Baltimore, all our relevant social media. If you support the perspective that, you know, we've talked about this evening, um, you know, when we send out action alerts, please contact your legislators. When we put it out, it's going to be really important for us to be able to defend ourselves against the policies that, Part, Democratic Party leadership is put forward in Maryland. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Davon. I really appreciate it. And I, I always love the opportunity to have these conversations. We went a little bit long tonight, but I think it was worth it. Uh, and we'll we'll pick it up next week and talk about the other part of it. But um, you know, good work on good work on setting up the argument so that there's a, a structure in order to fight against these laws. I think we're, you know, I think everybody, I hope everybody who's watching will be in agreement that we need to be able to have nuance and treat the 11 year old different than we treat the 16 year old. And I think that that analogy really sets us up well. Uh, and I appreciate the way that you brought it. So thank you very much, Devon. Um, good talk with you tonight. We'll do it again next week. All right. See you next weekend. All right. See you. All right. Take care. Hi, I'm Andy Ellis. I'm the host of this show and a potential Green Party candidate for Governor of Maryland in 2026. I'm using this show to highlight interesting people and ideas that help me and you to understand what is happening and what is possible.